The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a sleep podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is Paul Tuff, whose book How Children Succeed, Grit, Curiosity and the Hidden Power of Character has just been published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Paul, I really love the book, so thank you for coming into the Slate Studio to talk about it. Uh, well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So I thought you did a great job of both describing some important changes in education policy, but also explaining why education matters so much as someone who doesn't have children and doesn't really have children in my life, sometimes that discussion can be off-putting because it feels selfish. Like the tiger mother wants to get her kids into Harvard, right, right, right. but what about the kids who don't get in? So your book was great at really pushing home why it really matters that every child should succeed. I was astonished to read that in 2001, more than a million young people took the GED as a way of completing high school. Back then, one in five high school graduates actually took the equivalency test. But when a Nobel-winning economist called James Heckman studied GED holders, he found that their post-high school outcomes were very different from kids who graduated the traditional way. What did Heckman do with that information, and, and how big was that gap? That study really transformed Heckman's career. And, and James Heckman was, was in some ways my, my main source on this book. He's the guy who I spent the most time talking to and who really sort of guided me into understanding this new thinking about what skills and traits tend to lead to success. And, and so where he started was with the GED. And, and uh, the GED is, has always been thought of as being a signifier that kids are totally ready for whatever high school graduates are ready for. Yeah. It's just a test of cognitive skill, an expression of this cognitive hypothesis that if you have the smarts to graduate from high school, you don't actually have to sit there through the last couple of years of high school. You can just take this test, show that you're smart, and you have your high school degree. And just to interrupt a second, cognitive hypothesis, that's the kind of the idea that School is about teaching us facts, right? Yeah. So the cognitive hypothesis is a phrase that I've kind of made up to, to, to express what I think many of us think. And it's a very pervasive idea, I think, in, in our culture, which is that the skills that matter in life are IQ and, and cognitive skills in general. Um, and that if you have them, you're going to do well. If you don't, you're not. Right. Uh, and that what matters in a child's education and development is drilling them on those skills, giving those, them those skills and starting as early as possible mm-hmm. and working as hard as, po- as possible to get them. And in lots of ways, my book is really trying to uh, challenge this mm-hmm. cognitive hypothesis. So, so the GED was, was what got Heckman thinking about this cognitive hypothesis because the GED is based on the cognitive hypothesis. If you have the intelligence to get a GED, then you're every bit as qualified as a kid with a high school diploma. And so he went back and looked at these huge sets of data to look at what really happened to high school dropouts, GED recipients, and high school graduates. And he found that the GED recipients were, in fact, every bit as smart as the high school 
graduates that when you when you gave them just strict cognitive tests they really were smart but when you looked at their course through life how well they did in all sorts of measures from educational attainment to things like did they go to jail were they on welfare uh, how did their lives go they looked exactly like the high school dropouts and so this was this huge challenge for him to what he like most economists had always believed which was that it was this cognitive skill which was mm-hmm. the best predictor of life here was this group that you know had the cognitive skill but wasn't wasn't doing well and and what he came to believe was that it was this other set of skills which he called non-cognitive skills which are what you need to get a high school diploma just being able to persist at a task to delay gratification to think about the future show up at school every day right. <laughs> uh, that that stuff really is is what goes into getting a diploma not just getting all the information you get and that those skills are incredibly valuable in real life and adult life and then the second big idea that comes along in your book is one that i found really revolutionary which is not only this challenge of the cognitive hypothesis, but that the efforts that we have made to solve these problems that we've known about and identified for a long, long time around poverty and achievement, we've been tackling them as a social problem because they they express themselves as social problems. But you bring evidence that suggests that, in fact, they might have a biological cause. Yeah, so this was another... Um Direction of, of the reporting that I did, which was uh, talking to neuroscientists and medical doctors and people who are studying the development of the brain. And they are finding some really interesting results that I think are, are very much parallel to what Heckman and others are finding about non-cognitive skills, which is that what happens in the lives of, of especially poor kids, kids who are growing up especially in, in sort of constant, neighborhoods of concentrated poverty – what is holding them back is not so much their material poverty. Like that definitely matters, having mm-hmm. enough you know, uh, toys and a nice place to live and all those things. Those things matter. But that the real detriment of living in those environments is the stress that kids are under. And it's not just sort of like regular old stress. It's yeah. not just uh, occasional stress. It's what one uh, pediatrician who studies this stuff calls toxic stress um, because it's chronic. It's just always there when you're growing up in that kind of chaotic, uh, sometimes violent uh, loud, unstable environment. Yeah. The neuroscientists who are working on this and the biology folks who are working on this can show really clearly how that affects our physical development, our brain development, um, and our brain development in two important ways, in, our, in terms of our cognitive skills, but also in terms of our mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so growing up uh, around that kind of chaos with that kind of stress causes problems with health, problems with behavior, and problems with thinking, all of which are pretty important. Right, and since... We have identified, or especially after Heckman has helped us identify that all of those things matter as far as learning and as far as you know, developing our, our lives. You, you really make a good case of bringing all this stuff together. But after you've pointed out how key stress is, you then go on to point out that actually there's an antidote. So tell us about the antidote. Well, the antidote is parents or, or other caregivers, uh, adults in a child's life. Relationships, really. That led me into the, the science of attachment and then the study in, in psychology of attachment. It's really powerful stuff that shows that if a child in the first year of life is able to have a, a, a secure attachment with their with a parent or other caregiver, um, it makes a huge difference in terms of how well they do down the road. Attachment style in infancy predicts 
how well kids are going to do in pre-K, how well they're going to get along with peers at you know summer camp mm-hmm. uh, in middle school, and even which kids are going to graduate from high school. Uh, you can see those things at, at age one. And the thing to, that, I, that I feel like I need to say about attachment is you know the, the word attachment in, in parenting circles has gotten a different reputation in the last few years because there's this sort of like super attachment mm-hmm. uh, movement going mm-hmm. on that gets you know gets never let the, them out of your right reach this is like that gets you on the cover of time magazine <laughs> yes, when you're four years old right exactly. and and this is not about that kind of attachment this is sort of uh, just about regular plain old good parenting the statistics seem to suggest that about 60 percent of american children uh, have secure attachment about 40 percent don't to me there's like a really powerful message for those parents who are trying to get their kids into like the highest you know one percent right. <laughs> gifted and talented programs right. like what matters is being in the 60 percent not yeah. being in the one percent um, that having that kind of uh, attachment relationship with a, a parent gives kids what psychologists call a secure base from which to explore the world. They feel confident. They, they, they just feel stable in a way mm-hmm. that I think that kids who grow up with an anxious attachment don't. And one of the things that's great is that you write how these can be learned skills. Absolutely. Yeah. So and they I, can be taught. They, they can. So, so, and I would say, I would say it's, it's, it's partly that they don't always know what to do, but it's also that, you know, it's, it's a psychological process. So if you, if you grew up without yeah. uh, having a strong attachment with your parent, it has a psychological effect on you. And, and it's harder to form relationships. It's harder to stay in relationships. And when you become a parent, it's hard to have the kind of security that lets you give your child what your child needs. Right. The interventions that I um, looked at around uh, parenting, uh, around parenting and, and, and attachment uh, was mostly through this group in Chicago called the Answer Prevention Fund. And so I went on one of these home visits with an um, Answer Prevention home visitor visiting a teenage mom on the south side of Chicago um, and working with her to help her improve her relationship with her child. And in lots of ways, this is what, you know, home visitors all over the country do. They're, you know, visiting young people who have kids and, and, and helping them do better. But it was, I think, interesting and important to me that they weren't talking about it in the language of skills. Mm-hmm. They weren't saying, like, you know, here's how you read your kid. Here's how you uh, make sure that you improve their vocabulary. It wasn't through that sort of cognitive lens. It was about the relationship. And, and that's, you know, it's complicated stuff to talk about it. But it's really Absolutely. valuable, especially if you're a 16-year-old teenage yeah. mom, yeah. Um, because relationships is what you're thinking about all the time with your mom and your your son or daughter. And so giving them the kind of support to to help them understand that this relationship is really important is, I think, a really powerful intervention. And the the research is there to say that that will make a bigger difference in the life of that infant than anything else that that parent can do. A word that appears in your subtitle is character. Terms like that can be vague, but you describe how some schools and other institutions are taking very concrete steps to incorporate character building into their curricula. And you talk a lot about KIPP, which is at this point a group of charter schools, how they tried to strengthen students' characters as a way of improving their performance and achievements after graduation. Tell us about that. So, well, I'll just say a word about the word character, yeah, first yeah. of all. So, so uh, yeah, one of the challenges about writing about this stuff is that there there are these different fields that have different terms for what I think are, mm. are the same or similar things. So economists use the term non-cognitive skills. Neuroscientists sometimes talk about executive function. And, but educators are often talk about character. And, and there isn't a lot of 
part of what I'm trying to do in this book is show the, the connections between those two uh, conversations because um, I think they are very much connected um, and need to be more connected. Yeah. And when people like like so Dave Levin, who's one of the founders of KIPP, is the main educator who I talked to at KIPP. He now runs the KIPP's New York schools. And when he talks about character, yeah, he, he, there's two things I think that are important. One is that he's not talking about values and, and morals. He's not talking about kids being, you know, sort of polite and well-behaved. Um, he's talking about this set of skills that he thinks, first of all, are, are learnable and teachable, um, very much malleable, but that also are about making a child effective, giving them the, the tools and the skills that they need to succeed in life. Uh, and so when you look at character through that lens, it is a very different message than just, you know, behave right. right. <laughs> it's really about um, giving kids this idea that they can transform themselves, that they're not just, you know, I think kids often hear the message, oh, you're that kind of kid, you're a rude yeah. kid, you're yeah. a smart kid, you're a this or that. Even when those are positive things, yeah. uh, it can be very restricting because you just think, I am who I am. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're 12, you shouldn't be thinking, I am yeah. who I am, because <laughs> yeah. we all know 12-year-olds can change a whole lot. And so to give them that message that these are, these are things, things like curiosity and grit and self-control and optimism, these are things that you can work on. We can help you. Your parents can help you. You can get better at these things. That in itself, I think, is a really powerful message. Let's just pause for a moment to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest version of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal you get to pick. How Children Succeed isn't on Audible for the moment, at least, but Paul Tuff's 2008 book, Whatever It Takes, Jeffrey Canada's Quest to Change Harlem and America, is... Paul, that book was also about education policy, right? It was indeed. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download one of the 100,000 books available on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get credit. Now, Houghton Mifflin has very kindly given us four copies of How Children Succeed to give away to listeners, and Paul has signed them. If you would like one, send an email with the words children giveaway in the subject line to slateafterword at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, September 21st, 2012, and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address, and if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterword at gmail.com. I'm talking with Paul Tuff, author of the new book, How Children Succeed. You talk about a lot of studies in the book, a lot of tests, a lot of data analysis, but there was one section about one test that really fascinated me, and that was about how students' performance in a coding speed test was an amazingly accurate predictor of whether they'd graduate from college. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, so this was the work of a psychological researcher named Carmet Siegel. And she looked at two big pools of data in terms of how kids do and looked at these kids' scores on two different tests. One, a sort of traditional cognitive test, which we you know think is very predictive of how kids do. The other was this incredibly easy, pretty boring thing called the coding, skill, uh, coding speed test. 
And what you have to do in order to do the coding speed test, you get a list of numbers and a list of words, and you, each, each word has a corresponding four-digit number. Then you get another list of words. You have to look at the chart at the top, see what the number next to it is, and fill it in. And that's all it is. Yeah. So you just are doing this incredibly boring, <laughs> repetitive task. It doesn't task. test intelligence. It's just a matter of kind of applying yourself. Uh, absolutely. And so the two pool, pools of data that she was looking at, one was for high school and college students. And, and for them, you know, their score on this test didn't matter at all. And then the other group was kids who were applying to the Army. Uh, and for them, uh, the ha- they were actually graded on how well they did on the coding speed test. Right. The Army wanted them to be fast at this incredibly boring test. <laughs> and so what she found was that the kids who were in the Army test did a lot better at this coding speed test than the kids who were just regular college and high school students. But then she found something else, right, which was that then when she just went back and looked at the high school and college students, the ones who did really well on the coding speed test, even though there wasn't an incentive to do well, for them, it was very predictive of how well they would do. For them, their coding speed test score was actually as important an indicator of their future earnings as their IQ. And so this was this real question for her, right? Like, we know this test doesn't really measure anything (laughs) useful. Um, And so how can it be so predictive? And the answer was that what it measures is something called conscientiousness. Uh, And conscientiousness is a word we just know from daily life, but it's also this actual psychological category uh, that you can measure in kids. And the coding speed test is actually a pretty good way of measuring conscientiousness. If if, if there's no actual reward for doing it, but you're just the sort of person who works hard on something. And you just uh, want to get things right. Exactly. That actually matters. That matters in school and it matters in the workplace and it pays off in terms of salary. There's other research out there that I talk about in the book in terms of how predictive conscientiousness is of stuff like longevity and marital stability as well as, you know, educational attainment and salary. Her finding was one of the most clear examples uh, how much conscientiousness pays off. And like some of these other things that we've been talking about, the experiences of people at KIPP and other places show that they are in fact things that can be taught. In the history of psychology, there's kind of an anti-conscientiousness <laughs> movement as well, right. um, especially in the 60s and 70s. There were yeah. some psychologists who were like, conscientiousness is just another word for like docility and yeah. you know just being sort of sheep. So uh, yes, absolutely. I feel like there's strong evidence that conscientiousness matters and absolutely it can be taught. One of the things I like, though, about what Kip is doing is that they're not just talking about conscientiousness. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're going beyond it and saying, we don't just want kids who can follow the rules incredibly well and do boring tests. <laughs> there's no yes. Incentive, um, and so Kip also you know, talks about things like zest and curiosity and optimism, right. and uh, I think what that's I mean, enabled them to do is, is a, create a much more full portrait of what qualities are most likely to lead to success right. for kids. It's important to be rounded. Yes, for people as well as balls. Yeah. <laughs> and now another one of these what could be very airy fairy notions, but but people that you write about have managed to make very concrete is grit. What is grit and how do people demonstrate it? Grit is is a category that was more or less created by this one psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania named Angela Duckworth. And in lots of ways, the grit that she found is very similar to the, you know, John Wayne notion yeah. <laughs> of grit. And she actually studied, you know, the self-control and conscientiousness. And she, and she found some of what I was just saying, that, yeah. that like, there's something about just looking at self-control. She, she had found that self-control was very predictive of future success. Yeah. But there's something about it that's a little bit limiting, you know, yeah. just saying, like, the kids who follow rules. Yeah. Uh, that didn't seem to capture a real, uh, a real measure of success. And so she defined this, this idea of grit that was uh, – it, it had to do 
was self-discipline with keeping yourself focused on a task, but it was also had an element of passion to it. Mm-hmm. It was about persevering, not at something that someone tells you to do, but something that you are yourself driven mm-hmm. to do. And that that, she found, is a very important skill. Um, she then created this thing called the GRIT test, an eight-question test that anyone can take. You can go to her website, uh, Angela Duckworth at, at University of Pennsylvania. And, and you can take this eight-question eight test. And she found that people are pretty honest when they mm-hmm. take this test. And they actually, it's just a simple questions like how likely are you to you know, persist at a task? When do you give up on things? And that the scores that people give on this you know, self-administered eight-question test are incredibly predictive of how well kids do. And so she gave it to uh, freshmen at the University of Pennsylvania, and it helped predict who was going to persist in college. She gave it to uh, students who were taking the National Spelling Bee, mm. and it predicted how many rounds they would last. <laughs> uh, and she even gave it to cadets at West Point uh. who were entering West Point and doing this incredibly grueling first summer program called Beast Barracks. Yeah. And one of the details that I uh, I like about her research is that the Army had already created this incredibly elaborate score that was supposed to predict whether kids were going to – cadets were going to make it through Beast Barracks. And they, you know, it involved like their GPA and their like physical strength and lots of other things. Uh, and she invented this eight-question test, and it was more predictive yeah. than the Army's <laughs> score of who was going to stay in and who was going to drop out. There is so much really good stuff. I think we may have to um, skip over the really interesting section about IS three eighteen, a school where the student body is poor, black, and Latino, and has had extraordinary successes in competitive chess, thanks largely to a teacher named Elizabeth Spiegel. But I want to just go back a little bit to these character traits because David Levin, he was a student at Riverdale when he himself was in high school, which is a very expensive private school in New York City. And in the course of his studies in education, he has partnered with, in some ways, the head of school at Riverdale, a guy called Dominic Randolph. And through their conversations and through his own teachings, he's become concerned that privileged kids who study at his institution didn't have much opportunity to develop grit. Why are these rich kids worried? Surely they don't have problems with education when they're in this fancy school. So what was Randolph worried about? Yeah, so when, when I went up and, and first started reporting at Riverdale, I went there because of KIPP. So I've been writing mm-hmm. about KIPP since way back in 2006. I've, I've, I've followed a lot of their progress. But then Dave Levin and Angela Duckworth, where, where I found out, were collaborating with this uh, guy, Dave, uh, Dominic Randolph, the head of school at Riverdale Country School. And so when I went up there, right, I was thinking the same thing. It's like, oh, you know, I've, I've been reporting on poor kids. They've yeah. got lots of problems. The rich kids don't have any problems. They're all fine. But Dominic, you know, made this really uh, convincing case that that his students were really missing out on something. They were doing great on standardized tests. They had great grades. They were getting into great colleges. But he felt like they were missing something. And what he felt like they were missing was character. Was this this kind of inner strength that would that would help them meet challenges. And for some of them, you know, the the course I think when you're in that kind of social world, the course through college is so clear. The, mm-hmm. the sort of system of tutors and test prep and tests mm-hmm. and college admissions. And even that, the, the, the careers that you'll move into after college. Absolutely. So the, so it's hard. Like, it's hard work. These kids are yeah, totally yeah. stressed out. They're 
super scheduled. Their lives are not easy, but but they're actually not that challenging. You you can kind of like w- propel yourself down that course through right. college and even into yeah, right, that job at McKinsey or right. something yeah. like that without ever facing real challenges of the kind that you know kids at Kip are facing every day. Right. And so what Dominic was believed um, is, and uh, I think he's right, is that character strengths like like grit and self control, the kinds of things that that really matter as you go through life, that those are developed through failure, through really experiencing failure um, and learning how to deal with true setbacks, and that a lot of his kids weren't ever dealing with that at all. And so when they finally did uh, encounter some sort of setback, sometimes it would be in college, sometimes it wouldn't be even until you know, a first job or beyond, right. they would really get derailed. They wouldn't have the, the resources to deal with that. And so a lot of what he's talking about in terms of, of managing, uh, helping kids with grit is, is figuring out how to, in that hothouse academic environment that he is administering, how to create some room for kids to experience real adversity. I, I mean, I should say, like, he, he talks a lot about failure, and, and I think there's, there's something very compelling about that. I don't think it's as simple as that failure itself self yes, uh, leads yes. to success yes. um, because, you know, when I'm reporting in the south side of Chicago, those kids have uh, uh, lots of failure <laughs> yeah, in their yeah, lives, yeah. Uh, lots of adversity. And in fact, what they need is some protection from right, that adversity. Right, right, right. But I think Dominic makes a really strong case that for other kids, for kids especially in affluence, there's actually too little adversity in their right, lives. Right. And, and this, the, the, their families, their schools, the whole culture is not giving them the opportunity to learn how to deal with adversity. Yeah. And the, those kids may, you know, appear to be successful in life, but they may not live up to their potential. You know, they don't need the help that kids on the South Side need, but they're not reaching their potential, which which is unfortunate and it is. And, and worse. And, and I would even say, you know, th- there's even research that, that I talk about in the book by this, this Columbia professor, Sunia Luthar. She's actually found that it's not just sort of for rich kids, it's not just that they're not reaching their full potential. Some of them, I think, are having real um, psychological difficulties. Mm. And so she and, and some uh, this woman, Madeline Levine, who just came out with a, with a new book about parenting, um, this man, Dan Kinlan, who I refer to a little bit in the book as well. It's this, there's this, uh, this kind of growing sense, I think, in a lot of these high-income um, environments that something's gone really wrong in terms yeah. of how we're, we're preparing our kids. And the kids are really suffering, you know, and, and I think often getting really um, driven off track. And so Sunia Luthar talks about it in terms of parents that are putting a lot of pressure on kids to succeed in, in you know, very sort of narrow ways, mm-hmm. but are often kind of emotionally distant from them and that that creates this real psychological distress for a lot of kids. Mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. they find it very hard to, to, to kind of become themselves at right. this moment in adolescence where that's really what they need to be doing. Uh, and so... You know, Sunia Luthar, for instance, found that in a high-income and a low-income population, she found that the high-income population, their, like, drug abuse mm-hmm. and alcohol abuse was much higher than in the right. low-income population. Right. So, you know, those kids have, like, lots of resources to yep. go to rehab and right, things like right, that. Right, right, right. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a sign of real um, distress for, yeah. for lots of kids in, the, in that world. Absolutely. Again, some, some statistics that just blew my mind. One of them was about the kind of terrible college completion rate in the United States. Among the 34 members of the OECD, the United States is second to last behind only Italy in the percentage of kids who drop out of college without a degree. And that's more of an issue than ever before when an American with a BA can expect to earn, as you provide this statistic, 83% more than an American with a high school diploma. In this research, it turned out that among the factors that indicate which students will earn their degree 
high school GPA is a surprisingly accurate predictor. Why is that? Again, I've been writing about education for a while, but the, these college statistics I had not encountered before. And as I uh, dug into them, I just found them fascinating and a little mm. bit terrifying. Right. I mean, just just in terms of college graduation as a whole, you know, the United States just in the ni- in the mid '90s was number one in terms mm. of uh, percentage of people in their late 20s who were college grads. We're now number 12 in the world, and as you pointed out, at the same time, our college dropout rate right. has been going up. For a long time, we've been thinking that the real problem is getting more kids to college, yeah. uh, but it's not. It's getting kids through college. And there's a lot of evidence that what makes a difference in college persistence is uh, is non-cognitive skills. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's all those things we've been talking about. It's the ability to, to deal with those setbacks that you're going to get, whether you're that you know rich kid or that poor kid. And so that is why I think GPA is so usefully predictive of who's going to persist. Uh, you know, the, the SAT, if, if you read uh, Nick Lemon's great book, The Big Test, mm-hmm. uh, he talks about how the SAT was created in, in the period after World War II. And it was created to try to standardize these things, right? That like GPA wasn't, uh, couldn't possibly be predictive because right. who knew what this high school in, you know, Indiana was giving people compared to this high school in Florida, right? right. How could we know? So they wanted some standardized measure. What more recent researchers have found is that actually SAT and ACT scores are less predictive of college persistence than good old GPA. Right. Uh, and, and what Angela Duckworth would say about that is that the the reason is that GPA is, is reflective of these non-cognitive skills. It goes back to the GED yeah, research. Right, right, right. The ability to just work hard and do the stuff you mm-hmm. need to do to get a high school diploma, that is, you know, that's the same stuff you're going to need in college. So it helps to be smart, for sure, mm-hmm. when you get to college. But what matters more is the persistence, the grit, the non-cognitive skills that are going to help propel kids through that experience. And do you think they are being taught in, you know, you've talked about some special places that are really focusing on character and these these non-cognitive skills, but are they being taught in the vast majority of American schools? No, not at all, I would say. You know, I mean, I think individual teachers and individual parents are doing a great job uh, with individual kids, but I think there's not a system to teach them. And I think if anything, you know, the, the fact through first no child left behind and then race to the top under the Obama administration, it is really emphasizing standardized test scores, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, you can make a case for why those test scores are important. I think there's some good thinking behind both No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top. The problem for teachers is that, you know, they have these now very strong incentives to teach the stuff that gets measured on tests. Right. And and what we know from all this research is that non-cognitive skills don't get measured on tests. And so I think if you push school systems and teachers in that direction, that's how they're going to respond. Right. Uh, so if anything, I feel like they, most teachers feel like they have less of an opportunity now to teach these kinds of non-cognitive skills, character strengths, than they did 10 or 20 years ago. Wow. That was Paul Tuff, whose new book, How Children Succeed, is available in bookstores now. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterward at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas.